tell we're in Judges uh, at the end of the book. There's some stories there, and I'll mention this to the sermon, but keep in mind that these, these stories are true stories. These happened. Uh, they lay the framework of Judges, actually. They're not chronologically laid out in the book. They actually take place in the early side of Judges. And, and so I titled this My Way, and this is My Way Part 1, Part 2, Part 3. It's dealing with the whole title of the series, When Everyone is Right, and What Does That Look Like? I remember years ago, I bought uh, my dad a wooden pitcher with a saying on it that said this, I could agree with you, but then we would both be wrong. And every time I see it, it makes me smile for multiple reasons. If you've met my dad, you'll know why, but uh, I I like that saying. But isn't that just what we need to hear sometimes in life? Because if we look at ourselves, we tend to demand agreement with what we plan on doing, and we grate when anyone says otherwise. How dare someone disagree with my viewpoint? Our world screams that to us constantly. How dare you disagree? How dare you have a different angle? Because we want people to just agree with our way, to agree with our decisions, and we certainly cannot handle, I could agree with you, but then we would both be wrong. Now, that mentality of doing what I want, having it my way, uh, permeates much deeper than surface life decisions, and it goes to serious spiritual matters and eternity, and that's where we're going to be landing in Judges. What are the implications that come from that mindset? We too often approach God with our way and expect Him to rubber stamp our decisions. We want God to agree with us that we all right. And I can imagine him in heaven saying, I could agree with you, but then we would both be wrong. Look, if you read through the Gospels, and I'm currently working on our next series, which will be the Gospel of John. We'll be launching that uh, the first week of December, kicking off. So I've been reading through the Gospel of John over and over again and studying it. And it's interesting because when you read through it, you'll find Jesus answering the religious leaders with a little bit of that type of phrase at times, he says to them, I could tell you basically what you want me to say, but then I would be a liar like you. And so we do see God pushing back with that. I could agree with you, but then we would both be wrong. But we live in a time where we want to be right, that we actually say to God, I am right, and how dare you disagree with me. And so we're going to dive into this portion of Judges, and we're going to actually see that framework when everyone is right and what it looks like, and and hopefully apply that to our society and our culture and our life, our hearts, and change accordingly. So we struggle to hear that our way may not be the right way, and so we lock in and persist in doing things our way. And that is exactly the mentality of Judges. And that's what's illustrated here in these chapters, how it all got started. What does it look like? We just walk through all those judges and how the nation fell into idolatry and then it came back. They rejected God and they moved back. But the framework, what was the mindset of that society? That is chapter 17 to the end of Judges. It's a picture of life when everyone is right. And the fact is the picture it paints is not pretty And the picture of their society is a mirror of ours. Because there is no doubt that we live in a time when everyone is right and demands that everything be done my way and that everyone better agree that my way is the right way and just go through how our world works. And every 
screaming protests that may have popped up and everyone demanding that you get on board, uh, even believers, and I'll close with an illustration, sadly, of someone I hold dear that, that wrote a lot of books, and I, I read them a lot, recommending someone's book who adds their way to the gospel. We live in a time where everyone demands that they are right and demands that everyone accept it. And what we're going to see in these chapters as we move through the next uh, three sermons on judges is we're going to see the fallout of life when everyone is right. What does life look like? What are the warning signs? What are the pitfalls that rise up? So we begin with a look at the my way mentality with a biography of a thief who steals from his mom, who sets up worship his way. We're going to find a Levite. By the way, it's the grandson of Moses who has become an opportunist, chasing what is best for him and willing to break God's way to do it. And then we're going to find a tribe that refuses to take the land God gave them, searches out their own place and steal the gods and priests from the man who stole from his own mother. All done under the guise of actually worshiping the true God while breaking a significant number of his guidelines for worship and living. And just so I'm bluntly clear, I'm hoping that as we walk through this, we then understand how we may be breaking God's laws in a pretend way of worshiping Him. And so we begin looking at the behavior of an individual. Uh, chapter 17 of Judges, verses 1 through 6. And there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursed, and spakest of also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. And when he had restored the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will restore it unto thee. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a house of gods, and made an ephod and a teraphim, and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So a man whose name means who is like Yahweh, that's what Micah means, is petrified of the curse his mother places on the person who stole her money, which was him, and so he gives it back. She then blesses him in an attempt to thwart the curse that she has cast down on anyone who would have stolen her money. And I want you to recognize as we look through this, idolatry and paganism have permeated Israel. And this just points out how pagan they've become. We're cursing and thinking the curses will happen. We're blessing and thinking we can undo the curse that we gave. The world has driven itself into Israel and Israel has accepted it with open arms. She dedicates the silver to the Lord, and it's all in caps, to Yahweh, she's saying, but then use it in a way that breaks God's law. You see, Exodus 24 clearly states this, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In case God was not clear enough don't make an image of anything for worship. 
And so she is now dedicating silver to God to make something that breaks God's law. Now, don't miss the fact that she dedicated the whole batch to God, but is only using 200 shekels here uh, to make the images. We don't know if she gave it to some other good use. Uh, I'm judging by the context that she probably kept the remaining funds. They make a carved idol, locally out of stone or wood, and then along with that, a molten or a poured idol. These objects are now placed in Micah's house, making it a house of gods, to which he added an ephod, which would have been used by his son, the pretend priest, to worship and offer sacrifice, and then teraphim, which are household gods. So these are the little trinket gods you add to the the framework of your worship, even though you're only supposed to be worshiping Yahweh, to make sure everything goes well on earth. Crops, life, illness, with all those things, it's it's the everyday of life that they're covering. And so Micah now has him a mini temple to which local people can now come and worship, and he ordains one of his sons to be his priest. And what we see is convenient worship and service, or controlled worship and service. Micah is in charge of every facet of his worship and his supposed service to God. The articles remained in his possession. They're in his house. Those supposedly used to worship the true God by blatantly breaking God's law. The activities remained under his direction. His son was the priest and at his command. Even when he adds a Levite later on, the Levite works for Micah, under Micah's employ. Micah gives him 10 shekels a year. Micah's going to give him clothes. Micah's going to give him everything he needs to live. He works for Micah. And then the access to this place of worship remained under his discretion. His place, his priest, his property. Micah controlled every facet of worship. Everything could be conveniently aligned with his life, his hobbies, his habits, his preferences. Worship was very convenient for Micah. When everyone is right, worship of God, the Savior of the world, must fit their life and lifestyle. So you're going to watch as we move through these chapters On the side of worship, what you're going to see is it has to be convenient. It has to be controllable. So I ask this question of us, how convenient is our worship? Or maybe, how conveniently is worship set aside to do what you want? Because convenient worship is at your discretion. It's when you want to do it, and it's how you want to do it for as long as you want to do it, in the way that you want to do it. That is very convenient or controlled Worship. Who ultimately controls worship? You or God? And then what will become our repeated question throughout this whole message, is convenient worship really worship at all? If I worship at my convenience, I do it when I feel like it and the way I want to do it with whatever I want to do, when it fits my habits, hobbies, and schedule, Is that worship, that convenient and controlled worship, is that really worship at all? Now, I alluded to this earlier. Micah ends up with a bona fide Levite to play as priest. And we're going to examine that Levite's behavior in detail next. But I want us to notice another component of Micah's worship tied to that. 
Because along with his convenient worship and service, he also displayed manipulative worship and service. I'm going to read chapter 17, 12 and 13. This is when Micah has met a Levite, and we'll talk about more of that in a minute. And it says this, and Micah consecrated the Levite. And the young, and mind you, Micah is literally taking the role of Moses when he consecrated Aaron to be the high priest under God's direction. Here is Micah, some random guy in the hills of Ephraim, who is now consecrating Moses' grandson to be his priest. And, and it says this, And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. When the Levite comes to visit, Micah seizes the opportunity to have a more official priest. Though, by the way, this Levite was not from the priestly lineage of Aaron, being the grandson of Moses, he was not in line to be a priest. All in hopes that it would force God's hand in giving him blessings. You see, Micah viewed the Levite as the magic password to gain access to God's blessing vault. Hey, I spun it right, and there I got into it. This is a view of God I've, I've mentioned as many a times. I call it the genie of the Bible syndrome, where we look at God and think, all I need to do is hold the lamp right. I got to rub the lamp correctly and then just make my wishes. I do everything I need to do, and it unfolds like I want. God has to do for me what I desire, what I wish for, because I found the lamp, I rubbed the lamp, and the genie of the Bible must respond to me and, and give me what I want. And this thinking, I want us to understand, places us in control, in our minds, not correctly, of the all-powerful God. See, the genie is powerful, but it's under the dictates of a human being. And Micah says, I've got a Levite. God has to bless me. I found the lamp. I rubbed the lamp. God has to give me what I want. Manipulative. It doesn't make any sense at all, really, because if God is the all-powerful, almighty one, that he's not at your whim or nor at your command. He doesn't answer to you. God doesn't apologize for that. The Bible is not full of a God that does whatever humans want done. God is the all-powerful, almighty, sovereign God. He is not to be coerced, but it makes us feel good. The reality is God is not coerced into giving blessings. We are not the ones in control, nor can we manipulate God. I want to put this layered on top of this was the fact that neither a real priest or a real Levite was supposed to serve an, in, an isolated individual in this way. God had not called Aaron to be a priest and his lineage to be high priest. He had not called the Levites to serve him so that they would lock into an isolated person and then just be at their beck and call. He actually said the opposite. They had one place of sacrifice and service, and that was the tabernacle. When they were out in the towns, the, the Levitical towns that were spread through Israel, their purpose was to be spread among the tribes of Israel, and they were to be teaching the law to Israel. Israel would come at these centralized areas, and they would reach a whole region. And I hope you're getting a picture of who this young Levite is, and his name was Jonathan. 
And he is wandering off from what his job would have been because he would have been assigned to a Levitical town and his job was to teach about God's law. And he's not there. And so here we have a man with his angle on worship. He wanted to make the most of what he had and he sure did. His thoughts were on how he could move the Almighty to his benefit. His worship was highly manipulative. So let's ask ourselves... How manipulative is our worship? And, and I think it might surprise you. I've been surprised and I see myself, how I'm, I'm doing certain things in my mind at worship to gain something in my mind. I've seen a host of, of people and, and they'll say a statement and they're shocked that they don't get what they wanted from God and, and it blows their mind. It actually shakes their faith. And I, I realize manipulative worship, it crops up. Do we do the spiritual exercises to ensure that God will move, heal, bless, fix, etc.? Is our worship to get something from God? Pause for a second. Are you worshiping God because of what He will give you, of what He will bless you with? Because He has to move if you do the demands He gives. I remember counseling someone uh, they were going through a tough family time. Uh, they had come in, and it was, life was in shambles. And so they were talking to me, and I, and I found out that uh, they had not gone to fellowship or worship the Lord in, in decades. And I said, well, you, you need to get started worshiping. I mean, there's not, you can't sit here and come for spiritual help and counsel and then not be worshiping God not be coming and, and singing praises. And so this person starts coming faithfully to worship. I get surprised in my office one evening, which is my favorite, um, to be surprised at night in my office. And this person pops in and they say, it's not working. Worship's not working. My life's still in shambles. Things are broken. Things aren't right. And, and it dawned on me their whole reason for worship was manipulative. It was to coerce God into fixing their life. They weren't coming to worship to sing His praises. They weren't coming to lift His name. They weren't coming to glorify in who He is and what He has done. They weren't coming to grow in the knowledge of Him. No, they were coming because they thought, worship will fix my life. That's manipulative worship. And it begs that same question I said we would repeat. Is manipulative worship really worship at all. And I want us to be confronted with this because I'm going to go through a list of different types of worship that these people exemplify. What, is, what does worship look like when we do it our own way, when everyone's right? And the idea that I want us to, to permeate is this question, is this adjective attached to worship, if it's convenient or it's manipulative, and we'll go through a bunch more. When, when we look at that, is that really worship at all? You see, Micah gives us a first look at the worship of his day, but this story abounds with lessons of what worship and service looks like when everyone is right. And so our attention now turns, and the story turns, to the behavior of a Levite. This is chapter 17, verses 7 through 13. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. So he's living in Bethlehem. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. 
And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, and be unto me a father and a priest, and I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year, and a suit of apparel, and thy victuals, your food, your lodging. So the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, there he is, acting like he's high priest or Moses again, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest, which we talked about before. Now we're going to look at the behavior of this young man, this Levite. Here's a young man who has been living in Bethlehem, traveling north, to find a place, and, and it's exactly what it implies. He's looking for a good gig, and he stumbles on an opportunity for full-time employment with Micah. Yet every detail of his story speaks to spiritual failure. He's leaving Bethlehem where he didn't belong to begin with. Bethlehem is not a Levitical town where he was supposed to be serving where he's supposed to be teaching, where he's supposed to be worshiping. From that wrong place, he's searching that new gig where he can best use his talents, though, by the way, he's not in the right lineage to be a priest. And if he was a priest, he'd never be a priest for an isolated individual, nor would he be running around all over Israel. He'd be obeying what God said and be at the tabernacle. And so he jumps on the offer from Micah, serving one person, instead of being involved in teaching a whole region, instead of being in the town that God assigned to him, instead of training those people what God's law meant, he's abdicated his role, his God's given role, what God has called him to do to expound the law, to be involved in a community, to help them walk that journey, and he's hunting something better. He ends up serving at a shrine that breaks God's law, and he serves in a capacity to which he was not called. What we see in Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, and let that sink in, one in time frame, and two, he's the grandson of Moses, is opportunistic or pragmatic worship and service. Looking for results and not overly concerned with what is right. I'm too good for that town where I'm teaching. I don't like my life in that town. I'm going to end up in Bethlehem, and from Bethlehem, I'm going to start wandering around, and I'm going to find a place that fits me, that will work for the things I'm working for, where I can be best used, where my talents will shine. See, here is an opportunist looking for the best gig and willing to move to get it. God's Word and law has been bypassed so that more can be accomplished, supposedly, in his mind, better to be a priest at a shrine than a Levite stuck teaching the people. God's word and law are bypassed in the name of forward progress, and in this instance, very personal progress, and what supposed good it can accomplish. Yet in the process of accomplishing the supposed good, and I keep saying that because we use that we approach worship in a very opportunistic way. I hear people talk all the time, well, this is a good way to reach that person. Oh, by breaking God's law? Genius. That's a great way to do that. Let's reach this person the wrong way because the results will justify the means. Doing it against God's law as long as we accomplish or our motive is to accomplish that. It's okay if I do it against what God 
once. I'm saying sarcastically in case no one picks up on it. The, 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 in the process of accomplishing supposed good, he is breaking God's word. None of this aligns with God's way, but it's all cloaked in good intention and statements. This Levite had a job to do, and it was to teach in the Levitical town where God placed him to expound the law amongst the people where he was called to live and to serve at the tabernacle in the capacity laid out in numbers. And God had used his grandfather to pen those words. And he's walking two generations later, walking through Israel, looking for his place in the world. Where can I be someone? Where is my role? And yet he's ignoring what God had given him and what God had called him to do. Yet this Levite was looking for his best and not God's. So we find opportunistic or pragmatic worship and service. And that disposition is not going to end with serving Micah. We'll find that he jumps ship again when a portion of the tribe of Dan offers him the opportunity to serve a tribe and not just a household even when that service is also directly opposed to God's mandate and works to isolate those Danites from the centralized worship at the tabernacle. When you're an opportunistic person, you're going to keep chasing the next best opportunity. And guess what? If you're willing to be a priest when you shouldn't be a priest, then when you're a priest for one guy and a tribe offers you the job, you're going to take it because you can justify that better to serve a tribe than one household even when that leads the tribe further away from what God has called them to do. And then I ask the same question, has our worship become pragmatic, opportunistic? Do we justify rogue decisions because it accomplishes some supposed good while ignoring how it breaks God's law? Are we guilty of justifying our own pragmatic worship and service? And then again, is opportunistic or pragmatic worship really worship at all. When we add that adjective at the front, when everyone's right and our worship shifts from what it should be to some other variant, is it worship at all? See, the picture painted of the early days of the judges, which depicts the depravity of the whole time, looks bleak as we see the behavior of an individual and a Levite. And it doesn't improve when we examine the behavior of a tribe and there's a reason why this story unfolds this way. Because you might start saying to God, well, you picked the one crazy loony bin in the hills of Ephraim as your example. Uh, well, then God throws out the Levite, the grandson of Moses, who's off on a tangent. So, well, you picked one crazy guy in Ephraim and one loony bin out of Moses' family. And then God says, well, let's look at the whole tribe. In other words, we're building, the Holy Spirit inspired these words for a reason in this way. So we see an unfolding. And what the point is, as we go to the behavior of a tribe, which we're going to see in chapter 18, is that it permeates the whole nation. This chapter centers around a portion of the tribe of Dan who've chosen to seek their own inheritance. I want you to understand that Dan has been given a, a, a beautiful portion of farmland in the southeast of Canaan. Great property. That's where Samson lived, by the way. He was a Danite. And then there's this portion that says, no thank you, because it wasn't going to be easy to get it. And so they want to find something easier, something that fits their 
lifestyle, so to speak. And so they're going to go find their own portion. And understand what they're doing. They're telling God, no, no, God, I'm not going to do what you want. I'm not going to conquer. I'm not going to conquer this farmland. By the way, it was easier to win the hills than it is to win the farmland. But the farmland is where you can grow the produce that you need in abundance. And so they were given wonderful land. And so they send five guys to search out the land, and they start working their way north, southeast. They're going to end up at the upper portion of Canaan. They're going to be at the top end of it. And so through their journey, they're going to work through Ephraim. They're going to go through the hill country. Why? It's easier for Israel to conquer the hill country, and so it's also going to be safer for them to travel. And so in doing that, they head up and they pass by Micah's house. They recognize the Levite's voice, which makes sense. If you're Moses' grandson, people might know you. And get this in your mind a little bit too. He's in Bethlehem. He ends up in Ephraim. And people from the south know his voice. In other words, it just highlights how opportunistic Jonathan was. How he had to have something more than what God had told him to do. That he wasn't content with what God wanted because he had better results in mind. So they recognize the voice and they ask him when they recognize him and they know what he's doing to inquire of the Lord about their journey. And of course, Mr. Priest says, oh, it's under the eye of the Lord. It's under God's care. You are going to be prosperous. And so they go up north. They found a town without barriers and connection to the outside in a great location. And I put in parentheses, an easy win, right? Oh, God was so wrong to give us that land down there. This is much better. Why did he keep this from us, right? That's the, the mentality, an easy win. And so they return and report the good news. Then those Danites, which encompasses 600 men of Dan, ready for war, start north with their livestock and families. They pass through the hill country of Ephraim. And then the five men say, hey, there's a Levite here, grandson of Moses. He has idols. He does this priest work. And they, they say this in a little manipulative way. Think about what you should do. Well, it's obvious what they're suggesting. And that's like, go get the idols and what they do is they come, they take the idols, and they convince the so-called priest to come be the father and priest of their new little split-off tribe. And being an opportunist, as we talked about, he quickly agrees and is happy with his growing benefit or growing flock or growing influence. You name whatever you want there. He's content because he's got more power. Micah finds out and he brings the neighbors. They've been worshiping at this place. The Danites threaten them all with death that they try to retrieve the stolen goods. And ironically, the thief has been robbed. And, and we highlight something here. Very low ethical standards permeate the nation. Mike is stealing from his mom. And the Danites as a whole tribe feel no remorse, no guilt, no response, except we'll kill you if you want your stuff back mentality. They have low ethical standards that are permeating the nation. And so Micah just returns empty-handed. The Danites arrive up in the north. They annihilate the unsuspecting people and burn their city. Nothing about it shows that God approves of it, that it's actions that should have been done. They just literally walk in, murder everyone, and then burn the city. They rebuild it, name the city Dan, and there they remain with Jonathan and future families serving as their illicit priests. And I just put a note here. So much is wrong here, it's almost impossible to wrap our mind around it. We're centering in on this idea of worship. But let me just give you an idea. There is the pursuit of other land, discontent with what God has provided from them, or lacking in faith to go conquer it or occupy it. They are telling God, no thank you. 
I don't want what you've given. I'll find my own place. You go on. There's a theft of Micah's things, even if these are idols and pagan paraphernalia. They're stealing from somebody else, showing low ethical standards. They threaten Micah and the neighbors, demonstrating that in their mind, might is right. We're stronger. We do whatever we want. This is the, the mindset that comes there. Because Micah's coming up to them and they say, what are you screaming about? Well, you took my idols. You took my priest. And literally they say, hey, you better keep your mouth shut. There's some people we can't control that are going to kill you if you don't quiet down. Might is right in their minds. But I want us to zero in on two glaring faults that are highlighted in the two trips north, beginning with selfish worship and service. This is seen in the survey trip and their conversation with Micah about whether God would bless their trip, actually with Jonathan in Micah's house. If you look at 18 verses 3 through 6, so they're, they're in the house. When they were by the house of Micah, they knew the voice of the young man, the Levite, and they turned in thither and said unto him, Who brought thee hither? And what makest thou in this place? And what hast thou here? And he said unto them, Thus and thus dealeth Micah with me. In other words, God didn't want to waste time with the deal he set up with Micah. And he goes and hath hired me, that tells you everything you need to know, and I am his priest. I'm a man of the money. Pay me, I'll be your priest. And they said unto him, Ask counsel, we pray thee, of God, that we may know whether our way which we go shall be prosperous. And the priest said unto them, Go in peace before the Lord is your way wherein you go. What a convenient answer that is. Does he even notice something? Notice there's no prayer. Notice there's no seeking God. Hey, are we going to be prosperous? Yes. That's the easiest answer. You can come up to me and say, Kenny, will I, be, will, will I do well in this endeavor, in this business? Oh, yeah. And then you colossally fail. What, you were wrong. You didn't have enough faith. See, it's, it's simple to, to say yes. It's much harder, and if you read through the prophets, to actually tell the truth when it goes there. But I want you to notice something about these Danites. Here are people seeking God's blessing for a mission they have already begun. They're the southeast. They're already towards the, the higher part of the southern portion. Ephraim is above Judah and above Benjamin. They've gone from down south, and they are one-third at least their way on the journey. And now they're asking if God's going to bless what they're doing? There's no indication they sought God's blessing at the onset. He wouldn't have given it. They weren't supposed to be seeking other land. They're supposed to be conquering what he gave them. But when they encounter an opportunity to bolster their confidence on the road, they selfishly jump in. Hey, why not rope God into this thing? Here's a Levite. We know him. He's famous. So let's just see if he'll bless us. We'll get an okay out of this. Here are people seeking God's blessing for a mission that spurns his gift to their tribe. There's a, there's a no thank you to what God had given so that I can pursue this. And then here are people seeking God's blessing from a fraud, from somebody who is a fake, yet he's connected. And though there is an appearance of caring what God would think, their whole motive was self-serving and in conflict with what God had made clear. They presented God with selfish worship and service. A quick read says, oh, they're seeking God's will. No, they're not. They're roping God into something. And this happens over and over. Just pause for a second in your own life and think about it. How many times are you doing your own thing, your own way, and then suddenly you're going to pray about it? 
And you'll rope other Christians into praying about it. Oh, pray with me about this. You're already doing it. You're already moving on. You've already decided you're right. Yeah, you want to pull in this cloak of godliness, this idea that God is a part of it. And so we'll ask for prayer on something we've already decided to do. Or when we pray, it's in such a manipulative way. And this is what I hate about myself. I catch myself praying my plans to God, which is just ridiculous, especially when you hear yourself doing it. And you're praying and then you realize you're, you're literally telling God what you're going to do. You're not praying for his wisdom and direction. And so I put as a question, are we doing the same? And again, if our worship and service is selfish, should it be considered worship and service at all? If I go to the Lord in prayer, and the net result of that prayer is me telling God what I'm going to do, cloaked in a very Christian-sounding way, well, is that really praying? Is that what prayer is about? Is that what God's called us to do? Does that glorify His name? Does that lift Him up? Does that elevate Him where He should be and put me where I should be? Well, no, actually, it's the reverse of that. I've treated God in my prayer life as the genie of the Bible, and it's all self-centered and selfish. Well, as I noted, the Danites return after finding an easy target, and the whole group goes north, passing through the hill country of Ephraim and stealing Micah's idols and priests as their own. And in that, we're going to see something, and that's rebellious worship and service. As we already saw, they've stolen and bullied in this process, but in setting up their own priesthood and worship, they have rejected God's direct commandment and undermined the spiritual unity that God had set in place for the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 14, makes their rebellion clear, and it says this, Moses is writing, but when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety. In other words, if you do what God says to do, go occupy the land and actually go where he tells you, when that reaches this word, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offering of your hand and all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servant and your maidservant and the Levite that is within your gates for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. In other words, and, and the Levite in the Levitical towns where they dwell amongst you, you're going to bring them to this worship. They're a part of this. They don't have an inheritance among you. In other words, you're not supposed to be paid by a guy to do the job, but instead be where God told you to be. And you're going to bring and come to this place. And then verse 13 says this, Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. And the Danites do the exact opposite of this. They take Jonathan along, the grandson of Moses, and and, and your Bible text may say Manassas, and that was just a way in Hebrew to take the sting out of it being Moses, because it's referring to Moses, the father of Gershom, And they annihilate a people unsuspecting in a place that they were not given and then arrange worship in direct conflict with what God had said, separated from the truth and training of God's word. And you might say to me, Kenny, 
Levites were supposed to be spread all through Israel. They're just setting up where the Levite should be in their community and teach them. They're not supposed to be there. And so there is no Levitical town in that region because they're not supposed to be there. Let me rephrase that again so you understand it. They're not supposed to be there. They're in the wrong place, and now they're doing something in in complete conflict with what God said. Don't do this. Don't set up a place of worship. Don't offer sacrifices here. You and the Levites that live among you are going to come down, and you're going to come to a place, and, and Moses is not sharing what the place is. That something's going to happen under Joshua, but he knows there's going to be a place in one of the tribes and they're all going to come and that's where they should worship. And they decide to do the exact opposite. Chapter 18, verse 1, the first part says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in. You jump all the way to 27. It says this, And they took the things which Micah had made and the priests which he had and came unto Laish, unto a people that were at quiet and secure, and they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Zidon, and they had no business with any man. And it was in the valley that lieth by Beth Rahab. And they built a city and dwelt therein. And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born unto Israel. Howbeit the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the children of Dan set up the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan, which is not what a priest is supposed to do, even if they were a real priest, uh, until the day of the captivity of the land. And they set them up Micah's graven image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Worship in direct disobedience to the specific direction of God. And I have the same question, are we guilty of the same? And I hope that we can be confronted with this in our mind and heart. So many things are used to justify worship. So many little ideas, so many little pragmatic concepts, so many ways to supposedly reach the unreachable against God's law. And the the tribe of Dan drives home this principle of rebellious worship and service. It summarizes everything in one. Doing things against God's word and pretending that it serves God is ridiculous. And we must ask ourselves, are we guilty of the same? Is God really lifted up when anyone worships contrary to what he has said or worships is done in conflict to where he has directed? If the heart within you in worship is done with a rebellious attitude, which is done against like this, this conflict, this tension that's there, is it really worship? If our worship is rebellious, if it is done from that harder position, is it really worship at all? See, we've just looked at the sad state of worship and service when everyone is right. Next week and the following, we're going to dive into their society, which is awful, uh, actually, I think I said it to Heather when I started Judges. I said, how in the world am I supposed to preach to a whole group of people what happens in 1920 and 21? And it's easier to handle all the dead stuff at the end, but there's a, a portion of that. It's just utter vile wickedness. We're going to see society, what it looks like and what, what they'll engage in, and it looks like ours and its perversion. But here we've looked at the state of worship and service when everyone is right. And let's be frank, it's an ugly picture 
and it's an off-repeated picture. When everyone's right, true worship gets hijacked and twisted to fit everyone's wants. I'm going to go back to that illustration I, I hinted at. There was a favorite author of mine recommending a book from his, from his pastor, a book I read the first 36 pages because you could read it for free on Amazon and didn't waste money or give this clown any money for getting the book or writing this horrific heresy that was there. And the book said this, that the true gospel must contain their social justice, emphasis, and awareness. And I'm not going to define which one it was because I want us to kind of get a picture of what they're doing. It said that, that second to the true, pure gospel was the gospel with this world's agenda attached to it. They dared to make the pure gospel second best to a gospel that contained the world and their social agenda. To say it was disappointing would be an understatement, but it revealed something to me. It showed that there's a sad state of real worship in our world. We keep adding ourselves in some form or fashion. That's why I didn't list what it was. We find a way to go worship God, and then we say, I'm going to add me to this. Whatever I'm passionate about, whatever happens to be bothering or afflicting my people, whatever it may be, whatever pops in your mind, we're going to take worship, and I'm going to add me to it. Worshiping our way or worshiping our things, and by doing so, we pollute, and I want to venture to say, negate truly worshiping. This is the sad result of when everyone is right in worship and service. So as we close, I have two main challenges I want to just kind of remind us of. I'd like to challenge us all to examine our worship and service and see if it aligns with what God has commanded. Not if you can make it permissible because you find three phrases in this verse and ten phrases in another, and you can twist and turn God's word to make what you're doing right. I'm saying, can we challenge ourselves to, to honestly examine our worship and service and see if it aligns with what God has commanded, His way, or are you just going to keep going and continue doing things your own way? And then the second challenge is this. I'd like to challenge us all to hold worship to God's description and mandate and not shrink from identifying in ourselves the failure to worship our Lord and Savior purely and properly. When I first dive into Judges and I read these behaviors, an individual, a Levite, and a tribe, I think, how ridiculous are they? And the more you think about it, you start realizing how ridiculous are we. Worship of the true God is not to be an activity of ours. And that's how we view it. I'm going to come to worship. It's time to worship. And it's, it's fine. Those words aren't bad to say it that way. But see, what happens in our brain is that we start viewing worship as an activity of ours, and instead it's supposed to be an identity of ours. We are to be known as worshipers of God. It's our character. It defines who we are. So are you a true worshiper of the Almighty God, the Savior of the world? Or would you be better defined as a convenient worshiper, a manipulative worshiper, an opportunistic worshiper, a selfish worshiper, a rebellious worshiper? And if you are, should you be described as a worshiper of God at all? <laughs> 